Hey there, I'm Brittany Luce, a longtime documentary superfan, freelance journalist, and cultural critic. You may know me from my other podcasts, For Colored Nerds and The Nod. And I'm Ronald Young Jr. I'm an audio producer and live storyteller, a film critic, and cultural commentator. You may have heard me on the podcast Solvable and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. And we're popping into the I'll Be Gone in the Dark feed to bring you an episode of a new HBO podcast that we host called HBO Docs Club. On each episode, we take a closer look at a film or series in the HBO Documentary Films catalog. We'll get updates on the stories, talk with the filmmakers behind each feature documentary, as well as experts who help us make sense of what we've seen. This season, we'll be watching stories about Harlem's legendary theater, a transgender woman who tried to revolutionize the auto industry, and learn about big political scandals. And the episode we're bringing you today is about Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, the lost children of five-part docuseries with a never-before-seen look at the tragic killings in the city too busy to hate. You can watch it right now on HBO Max. And be sure to subscribe to HBO Docs Club wherever you get your podcasts so you can know what we're watching next. And now, take a listen to the HBO Docs Club episode on Atlanta's Missing and Murdered. A great documentary makes us question everything. everything. The things that we know and the things we think we know. But we're actually completely wrong about. This is the beginning of my last act. In order to know how to go forward, I'm going to have to know where I've been. The public figures we love and love to hate. The issues that we must face as a society. Huge cultural moments. I mean, as a Black man, you're born into this world with PTSD. Things you can't unsee. The aftermath is worse than the actual levees breaking. Someone who's different from us, but also... Not that different from us. Somebody offers you a million dollars, you're going to take it. Documentaries show us the worst... And the best... Of what what human human beings beings are capable of. The citizens of Atlanta are going to have to take our community back. Welcome to HBO Docs Club where we deep dive into the true stories that captivate our imaginations. I'm Brittany Luce, longtime documentary superfan, freelance journalist, and cultural critic. You may know me from my other podcasts, For Colored Nerds and The Nod. And I'm Ronald Young Jr. I'm an audio producer and live storyteller, a film critic, and cultural commentator. You may have heard me on the podcast Solvable and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. During each episode, we'll take a closer look at a film or series in the HBO Documentary Films catalog. Sometimes they'll be from our recent past, other times they'll be brand new, but they'll all inevitably teach us something about the human condition. So this week, we're taking a look at Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children. This is a five-part docuseries that HBO first aired back in 2020. It tells the story of what happened when dozens of Black children, mostly boys, and young adults were abducted and murdered in Atlanta, Georgia in the late 1970s, early 1980s. I want to know who killed Curtis. I'm not going to stop because I'm a warrior. This vulnerability that at any moment you can be stolen. We come from stolen people. That's deep in our psyche. Do what should have been done. Solve the cases. It's one of those memories you have of Atlanta. You really wish you didn't have it. This series was directed by Joshua Bennett, Maro Chermayev, Jeff Dupre, and Sam Pollard. In this episode, we're going to talk with Sam Pollard about his work on this project. Somebody had to be prosecuted and found guilty so the city could heal. But the question you have to ask yourself, did the city really heal? And we'll also speak to author Tayari Jones, whose experience as a child growing up in Atlanta during this traumatic period inspired her first novel, Leaving Atlanta. People look at the children as the future. So they're killing Black children meant they were killing the future. Children don't think of each other symbolically. Like, I didn't look at my little friends and be like, there go the future. And before we get too far into things, consider this your spoiler warning, okay? So if you don't do spoilers, please stop this episode and come back after you've watched today's documentary. Okay, so let's start off with a recap of this week's story. So it's the 1970s, and Atlanta at this time is known as the city too busy to hate. 
I mean, it's become this city that everybody wants to flock to. And it's fueled by this excitement over the election of Atlanta's first Black mayor, Maynard Jackson. But below the surface, there's all of this long-held racial tension and economic divisions that are percolating, kind of threatening to tear the city apart. And when Black children begin disappearing and showing up dead, the city is on a verge of an unprecedented crisis. So by 1980, all these kids are missing or turning up murdered and Distrust in the police and the city officials is at an all-time high. Citizens are organizing to protect their neighborhoods. They really want to take the matters into their own hands. And one of the volunteer parties finds a slain child in an area that the local police said they had canvassed the day earlier. And more and more little children are still disappearing. So at this point, they call in the FBI, but even the feds can't do anything about it. And conspiracy theories, it could be the Klan, it could be a cult, it's pedophilia. And this is when we're introduced to Wayne Williams, who's a local talent scout who might have been recruiting some of these victims. I mean, he allegedly went around to kids saying, I can make you the, the next Michael Jackson and claimed to be a, a record producer and a music producer. So at this point, the city's reputation is on the line and the murder count is rising and law enforcement is facing so much pressure to make an arrest. So on May 22nd, 1981, an FBI stakeout of Atlanta's Bridges leads investigators to Wayne Williams who then becomes the main suspect in the killings, and he is quickly arrested in connection to the murders of two men in their 20s. In January 1982, as Williams' trial is getting underway, the victims, family members, the press, and the public at large basically descend on the courthouse to witness this trial in this case that has grabbed headlines across the country and around the world. And now everybody's upset that Mayor Maynard Jackson, the chief of police, all of these elected officials all seem way more concerned with maintaining Atlanta's image than with protecting the children. These are Black children. These are members of the Black community. So Camille Bell, one of the mothers of the slain boys, she calls for swift action. She's organizing and she's taking the elected officials to task. Since the mayor would not notify the city of Atlanta that something was going on, we were trying to notify them. But then an explosion at a local daycare center leaves five children dead. And all of this frustration reaches a fever pitch. So in the mid-1980s, Wayne Williams' appeals attorney, Lynn Watley, anonymously receives this shocking evidence, basically connecting members of the Ku Klux Klan with the Atlanta child murders. Then an undercover informant and several investigators take the stand as the judge evaluates Williams' plea for a retrial. And then 40 years after the murders began, the victim's family members gathered to grieve and discuss whether or not Williams is guilty or innocent and double down on their commitment to finding out what really happened to their children. Yeah. Can we just start by acknowledging that this series is a lot? Yeah. I'll be honest, I had nightmares watching this documentary. It was a lot. Yeah, it wasn't quite nightmares for me as much as just a lot of anger. This was one of those large events that especially affected the Black community. Like, let's say the Tulsa massacre or any mm -hmm. of the race riots that we don't talk about. When you find out any of this information as, you know, a current Black person today and this time, and you're like, wait. Why do I not know about this? Why is this not more common information? Mm. Why is this not more part of history? See, I was familiar with the story. I didn't know all of the ins and outs of the investigation, but I was familiar with the story. Basically, like when I heard about the case, like I was still around the age that they were when I learned about it. Wow. It stunned me that this is something that could happen to little kids like me. And it was so unconscionable to me that that many children could go missing or that many children could end up murdered. To have the response be so botched, there was just a complete lack of care and a lack of follow-through. Watching this documentary made me sad, but unfortunately, it didn't make me surprised. Mm. I thought that the documentary was really well done and did a good job of showing a lot of different angles and giving us a lot of information when I was taking notes, I typed out every single time they mentioned a victim's name. And of course, it ends up being like 30 names. You meet so many of their families and you learn the details of, 
you know, when they were last seen or how their body was found. It's It was a lot for me to take in as the viewer, but still I was able to take it in as the viewer. Yeah. I think that speaks to the strength of the filmmaking. They had a lot. They had a good mix of pictures, of news and interviews. They had it all. And they have so many different perspectives in there. And I think this Mm. does a very good job of shifting us from one phase to another. And I think what struck me is the way the filmmakers kind of allowed everyone to have their own perspective without being biased as filmmakers. Yes. Yes. And because I think it's common to kind of fall into that territory and saying, this is what we think, as much as they're just kind of saying, here it is, here it is every single time. Yes. I mean, we're talking about 30 murders over a period of nearly two years. And the time period that's being covered primarily is going from 1979 to basically 2019. Yeah. That's 40 years. They're covering four decades. And even though segregation in Atlanta happened along the black-white line. They Mm -hmm. had, they talked to a bunch of black people and they talked to a bunch of white people (laughs) and they all had different levels of investment in the mythology of Atlanta. They all had different angles as to what they thought it meant. They all had different opinions as to whether or not they thought Wayne Williams killed the two people who he's convicted of killing, whether or not he had killed anybody at all. Camille Bell says at one point, she's like, I don't think Wayne Williams killed anybody, which you could definitely tell that the police department was not trying to hear. Yeah, These were really credentialed people who also had the chops and had the firsthand experience to speak to the topic at hand. Yeah, they all had stakes, everybody. They did a great job of like allowing the viewer to come up with their own interpretation of how these things work. Yeah. I want to talk about Camille Bell. (sighs) Camille Bell was the mother who was kind of leading the charge when it comes to all of these kidnappings. Camille's was the mother of Yusef Bell, who was kidnapped and murdered. And and she was kind of on the warpath. She was at the front of this, you know, kind of doing a lot of community organizing, staying in the news, staying on the front page. And she was driving a lot of the interest that came in these cases. And there was a lot of Black women that were doing this back then, which I always Mm -hmm. want to applaud. But the one thing I want to note was that when we started talking about people moving on and them wanting this case to be over, Camille Bell never bought in to Wayne Williams being the suspect. No, she did not. Immediately, they start trying to discredit her. And and the funny thing is, is and this is lightly mentioned, they were like, it wasn't just political figures, you know, like law enforcement and politicians trying to discredit her, but they even got ministers, people, Black people in yes. the community to yes. discredit her, saying that we want this to be over. And these are all people who have an interest in Atlanta being the Black Mecca and continuing to move on past this, what looks like a stain to them. The city administration just wanted the community to stop making a big deal about this. And of course, the community was not going to because it was our kids. What is the cost of the Black Mecca if we want it to be that when there's this horrible things happening, especially like you're talking about, to impoverished Black folks who don't have any interest in having a Black mayor that doesn't serve their interests? You know, if yeah. being successful for middle class and working class Blacks also doesn't serve their interests if their basic needs aren't even getting met. Mm. In between the parts in which I'm angry, that's when I really started to appreciate the work that this documentary is doing. But when it comes to the families, they don't really get a a pretty resolution like everyone else. And they don't even get, in some cases, an answer to why this was happening to them. Mm -mm. But I'm really struck by them showing all of these families. There was one particular exchange about one of the victims, Clifford Jones. He was at the grocery store with his family to get sugar for his aunt's birthday cake. And he was abducted outside the store. We were asking everybody as we passed people, did they see a little boy? About 10, I'm 11 o'clock. They knocked on the door. They were trying to get me to look at the picture, and I didn't want to look at it because I didn't want it to be Clifford. I think the heart of this documentary is they keep bringing the families back to say that yeah. people were affected by this. Families were hurt and ruined, in some cases, destroyed. And some people, their entire relationship with Atlanta, they show people leaving. They couldn't go back. I couldn't be there anymore. That's the hardest bit of this to swallow is the reality of all these people who were deeply affected. I dream about them all the time, but I never see his face. I hear his voice, but I don't ever see his face because his face was so brutalizing. 
it was just a nightmare. It was a night nightmare to him. And I want justice. Also seeing the families over and over again, especially like the mothers or mother figures, to see their humanity and their sadness and their grief come up time and time again, but also at certain small parts throughout the documentary. There would be moments where critique as to how these children were being raised. How were they off by themselves? Who let them out of the house? They should have known this. They should have known that. When Wayne Williams does his first press conference in his yes, living room. Yes, Brittany, I know exactly what you're saying. And yes, I agree. Yes. He offers the same critique. Oh, well, these children are dead because the parents should have been X, Y, Z, and they need to raise these kids better. I think that was the one time where I was like, I don't know who told you to say that, but that doesn't sound good Mm-mm. coming from you, a suspect of such atrocities. Like, why would this be your defense? I mean, his parents were kind of from like a solidly middle... His father was a career photographer as a black man. You know, it seems like he was like a... They were like a solidly middle-class family. Mother was a school teacher. Both his parents owned their home, still lived in it. But also, I saw... That sounds like something that people of their generation would say and that a young person who they had raised probably would also say. But also, even if he didn't believe those words, right? That works. Blaming a black mother. Yeah. It plays. It plays. Unfortunately, it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't, no. And so it's not surprising that he used that to deflect. We should not live in a world where you do have to constantly monitor your child at any given second, even at the grocery store, because some predators are out there trying to snatch up your children. Like Now, we do respond to living in that world, and we all understand what that means. Yeah, I don't think that there's any bad enough parenting that you have to do that your child is kidnapped. That's not the cost that you pay. No. It feels wildly unfair and very victim-blamey. Right? Something that I really appreciated in the documentary is that the mothers and mother figures of these children were never asked to refute such ridiculous claims. I appreciated the fact that like what was continuously offered to us was their humanity. This all was taking place during the 70s, 80s, and some of the action in the 90s. And of course, Black motherhood is always going to be a topic that is hot button for a lot of people. Yes, always. And you're expected to defend yourself. Exactly. And it comes up in subtle different ways. This is a tragedy that could unfortunately happen to anybody. Correct. And to blame them for the tragedies that, you know, have touched their lives. There's this one woman, Mildred Glover, who would host a lot of the mother survivors over at her home. And they would eat together and talk together and kind of just fellowship. We had a little group going on to about 85. This lady called Mildred Glover. We would go to her house every Saturday. She helped us through a whole lot. And it was so nice to see them in that space of enjoying each other's company and being yes. dressed up and taking photos. It was great to see them organizing, right? When they when yeah. they were organizing and going to court and, you know, going to community meetings and, you know, shaking the table. It was great to see them do that because they deserved to be heard. But it was also nice to see them in moments be each other's comfort. Yes. It felt very deliberate. And it's an approach to thinking about Black mothers and Black motherhood that wasn't present really in the media at the time. And also people still seem to struggle with today. Yeah. But also there is so much that people don't know, even in the sense of just not having closure. Yes. There's no answers, but there is some pretty strong evidence pointing towards some very serious conspiracies with the whole situation with the Klan. Yes. Yes. The ways in which the Klan and the Atlanta Police Department and possibly the FBI, I don't know if I necessarily say they were in direct cahoots, but like there was sort of the... uh, Light cahoots. Yeah, light cahoots, (laughs) like the general cover of like of uh, deep Southern like Jim Crow racism, like that style of racism. They were kind of like trying to have each other's backs and possibly cover up, you know, intermingling between the FBI, the police force, and the KKK. I remember thinking at when I'm hearing the Klan and I'm hearing what the police investigators are doing, and I'm listening to all these people saying that I don't recall, uh, you know, understand and all that, I felt like it just became a very uniquely Southern parable that we hear all the time, which is like, all of a sudden, everyone's forgetful. All of a sudden, people don't know who's in the Klan or who's involved in all of that. Exactly. You know, you have all these videos of people like saying the N-word, being forceful, which is like, so obviously people are working together in order to, at this point, what looks like a cover-up. Exactly. The Georgia Bureau investigation 
had opened up an entire investigation on Ku Klux Klan involvement in the killings. It had been kept completely secret and, and indeed separate and apart from the task force that was investigating the murders, separate from the prosecuting authorities. That evidence had never been presented. That whole section even was mind-boggling to me just because I could only imagine knowing just how much information is out there, just how much information never got to the family. And how many, you know, people said that like either their neighbors were not questioned or some eyewitness wasn't questioned or their family wasn't mm -hmm. questioned or their family wasn't approached by the Atlanta Police Department or by the authorities until after their loved one's body was yes. found. Yes, horrific. You know, at that point, someone's been missing for quite some time. There should be some momentum behind that. And if I'm frustrated by that as the viewer, I can only imagine the families. Yes. The thing that kept showing up for me as a theme throughout the entire documentary series was just how dedicated Atlanta as a city, the government, police department, just how devoted Atlanta was as a city to this narrative that they were this city that was too busy to hate. For me, I was born in the late 80s. My aunt and uncle lived in Atlanta. So we used to go all the time when I was growing up. I grew up after whatever myth-making they were trying to do in this city had obviously worked. Yes. And it's very interesting and disturbing on some level just to see how well that worked. Not to say that um, just because something terrible happened in a city means that there's nothing to love about that city or that you shouldn't be proud of it. A lot of this desiring to have this narrative around Atlanta is, you know, kind of coinciding with the election of the first Black mayor of Atlanta, Maynard Jackson, but also his election as mayor, as the first Black mayor of a large Southern city, right? That also is kind of a reaction to the previous decades of racism and Jim Crow throughout the South that predated his win in 1974. I'm really glad that the documentary didn't shy away from getting into that. Yeah, but our focus becomes on the politics and the political pressure to solve this case, to get it done, which is kind of what creates the fixation on Wayne Williams and on making sure that we can tie this up and get rid of it, which again, that's kind of what evokes the anger in me to say like, you want to solve this case so bad so it could go away, but not necessarily so you could provide the type of closure and healing that the community actually needs. No. For me, I don't know if Wayne Williams did it or not. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't believe that he did all of it. And I don't think that there was a, enough effort to rule out everyone else or all the other suspects that could have been involved in it. Rule out every white person as yeah. the investigation. They were just like, eh, definitely wasn't a white guy. Just one day they woke up and just like, nobody white did this. <laughs> exactly. What? We're saying, you know, in looking at the killer, it has to be a black person. And that's, that's just a fact. The older I get, the more I understand just how vulnerable, specifically vulnerable, it must have felt, I think, for a lot of black parents all over the country. Yes. They had some trust that they could send their kid to the store and the kid would come back. Yes. Or they could send them to the movies. I just think about how innocent that is. Yeah. You could send your kid on the bus to go to the movies, give him a little money for snacks, and then you, you think you're going to see him in a few hours. Yes. I definitely grieve not being able to live in a world where you should be able to do all of these things. Like you're talking about a systemic failure in which we fail to protect our children and each other, but we fail to protect them. And then after we failed them in that first way, we failed them in mm -hmm. a second way by not actually going and shutting the doors that caused any of these issues, by going and finding the actual perpetrators of these crimes, putting effort into it beyond when these are our white children. Uh, but yeah. in this case, these are poor black children. So we're not putting the effort in until we feel bad about not until we're shamed into doing the right thing. Yeah, watching this made me really curious for us to talk to Sam Pollard and, and just see how everything came together. Next up, we talked with one of the directors and executive producers on Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, Sam Pollard. Pollard worked on several feature films with Spike Lee, including the HBO documentary Four Little Girls, which was nominated for an Academy Award. Four Little Girls, as well as his films Black Art, The Absence of Light, and Mr. Soul, are available to stream on HBO Max. Sam Pollard, welcome to the show. We are so excited to be talking with you today. Thanks for having me, Brittany. Thanks for having me, Ronald. So how aware were you of the child murders when they were happening? And did that factor into why you wanted to tell this story? Well, you know, I was 29 years old when the murders started happening. So I was, I was pretty aware of them back then. 
thought it was horrible what was happening in the community. And, you know, and as a documentary filmmaker who's looked at the African-American experience from Eyes on the Prize to the Rise and Fall of Jim Crow to Slavery by Another Name, this to me was a continuation of exploring the dynamics and the complexity of a story about these young African-American boys who went missing and the trauma, you know, they left for their family members, their parents, and their siblings. People need to understand that the American story is just not about white people. Mm. There's layers to it that's sometimes complicated. And part of my responsibility as a documentary filmmaker is to be able to help tell those stories and get them out to the public. So that was one of the main reasons to wanting to do it. The thing of going down to Atlanta, I think me and the company that I worked with, Show of Force, we went down there and we spent a lot of time with many of these mothers who still, still are living the daily day trauma of losing a loved one. It was powerful, powerful stuff to sit down with them and interview them and have them relive that past and the pain that they still feel inside their hearts. It's interesting that you bring up how immediate the trauma still felt during the time that you were shooting, like midway through shooting the documentary, the city of Atlanta decided to reopen the investigation. What was your reaction when you heard that the case was going to be reopened? You know, as a filmmaker, you say, wow, that's going to really help this film. (laughs) (laughs) Honesty. You know, we're down there and all of a sudden we get reports that Keisha Lance Bonds is going to have a press conference about reopening the case. You know what we did. We got a crew together. We ran over to City Hall to document it. And we knew immediately, as we had been spending weeks in the production office, sort of laying out the cards about the different young men who had gone missing and were found murdered and the parents. We're thinking of the structure. When we found out that she was having this press conference, we knew we had the opening for the film. Did it change the conversations that you were having with people? Like, did the tenor of the conversations change because the story was brought back to the present? It did a couple of things. First of all, it introduced us to a few family members we had been trying to reach and hadn't been successful at. That's number one. Number two, it added to the conversation that was an ongoing conversation between us and the production team was Wayne Williams, the killer. Mm. There were those of us who immediately said, he did it, he did it all. And then I was one of those who immediately thought he didn't do it all. Mm -hmm. He was a very difficult guy to get on board because we were hoping to get him to do an interview. But we went around and around. I think I talked to him at the prison two or three times. He wanted to really be in control of his own story, which, okay, I understand that, but we were the ones who were making the documentary and we couldn't let him have this control of the narrative. These young men go missing for over a year and a half. Somebody had to pay the price. Mm. And it was it was a rush to justice. Somebody had to be prosecuted and found guilty so the city could heal. But the question you have to ask yourself, did the city really heal? And when you listen to some of these interviews in the film, you can tell that some of these parents and the brother of a couple of people, the brothers of a couple of these young men, they haven't healed. Mm -hmm. They're still living with the trauma. I mean, another person that we talked to was Anthony Terrell, whose brother Earl was one who went missing. I interviewed him myself. He had me in tears. The pain that he felt when his brother went missing and the pain that he still carries with him to this day had me in tears. It's very, very, very bearing for me to walk this area because... I can see my brother still walking. And that's something, you know, I don't try to hide, but I'm very emotional. And I think that's where my depression come from because it bothers me so much to know that, you know, who did it? You know, he went from big brother to no brother. So how did you get the family members of victims on board? And what was that like? We had a wonderful supervising producer, a woman named Serena Warfield, and she, you know, with her team of associate producers, they reached out to all of these people. And except for a few exceptions, the, everybody we reached out to said yes. The only person that we, we reached out to who we found who didn't want to go on camera, who was a real focal point in the story was Camille Bell. Mm. Camille Bell did not want to come back on camera. Her children didn't want her to be on camera because she had caught such flack back in the 70s when this happened to her own son. She was the only one who said no. Obviously, working on this documentary, you had a lot of heavy conversations. I, it makes me wonder, like, what, what is the responsibility of a documentary filmmaker when asking people to open up about, you know, that type of trauma, these types of traumas and, and legal neglect after so many years? The responsibility you have is that you're supposed to be as empathetic as possible to the people you're interviewing. You're there to give them the ability to say, I've been going through all of this. I want to share this with you. 
You know, you want to respect the pain they've lived through and gone through. You know, and as a documentarian, you don't want to exploit that. Not when you're interviewing them, not when you're in the editing process. That's part of your responsibility as a filmmaker. And I take that extremely seriously. We try to be as respectful as possible to the people we interview. And that's the job. That's the job as a documentary filmmaker. What were the conversations like when it came to showing the bodies of the victims? Some of them were pretty graphic, and I, I imagine that was hard. The conversation was similar to one I had when I did Four Little Girls with Spike Lee back in 1996. When we showed the bodies of those four little girls, the question we had to ask ourselves, how long do we hold those shots? We need to hold them long enough so the audience understands the gravity of what they're seeing and what happened in the 16th Street Baptist Church. That was the same kind of conversation we had when we showed some bodies of these boys in the woods. How long to hold those shots so the audience understands the gravity of what happened to those boys. I've had that same discussion when I did when the levees broke with Spike to show the bodies after Katrina. Filmmakers, we have to always constantly ask ourselves all of these questions in terms of responsibility, in terms of a level of integrity. You know, it's not fly by night. You know, say, okay, let's put that shot in. Let's put these bodies in. How long? When do you know that you've had maybe two frames too much? When do you know that maybe it's got to be three frames more? Those are very, very delicate questions you ask yourself in the editing process. This story doesn't have a clear resolution. And, you know, you and your collaborators knew that from the start. But what do you make of the polarization around William's culpability in these crimes? Well, you know, like all of us, when we first got into this project, we thought, we would find the magic bullet. We would find some evidence that either he did it or that he didn't do it. And that the film would end with that sort of revelation. Wayne Williams did not commit the murders and here is the tangible evidence to show that he didn't. Yeah. Or Wayne Williams did commit the murders and here's the tangible evidence that showed that he did. Well, as we were working on the film, we realized that it wasn't going to be either or. It was going to be in the middle, it was going to be this debate. You know, the, the thing that's interesting about life to me is that most times that's what it is. It's about never completely black or white. Sometimes it's shades of gray. And this is what leads to very interesting discussions. I mean, some of these parents that we interviewed don't feel that Wayne was the killer of their child. Some do, some don't. And it leads to very interesting, complicated debates. I mean, the only thing we all know about life is what? You're born and you die. Mm. <laughs> Everything else can be very complicated, very layered, which, quite honestly, I kind of like that. You spoke about how so many events that you covered were things that you remembered from growing up or just remembered from being you know, out in the world and, and they affected you. What motivated you to, to get into documentary and to focus on it? I wanted something to do that wasn't boring. I love that honesty. <laughs> <laughs> and initially, when I got into this film and television workshop, that had been started by the public television station in New York in 1968 after Dr. King's assassination to get more people of color in the editing room, shooting on the cameras, taking sound. I got into this workshop in 1971 after I had spent this one year in this workshop learning the rudiments of filmmaking. And then I got hired to work as an apprentice editor on this feature film called Ganja and Hess, directed by the late Bill Gunn. But the editor of that feature film, Victor Konevsky, took me under his wing and he opened up this curtain to me to the world of documentary. And then as a young editor, fledgling editor, you know, sitting with material, figuring out how to take real stories and real people and give them a dramatic form and a narrative structure, I became enamored with the documentary form, you know, fell in love with it. What do you think a documentary can do or accomplish story-wise that a fictional story can't? I always say this, and I, you know, someone can say I'm wrong, but I think part of that motivation for Keisha Lance Bottoms reopening the case was the fact that there had been a documentary made about a series about the missing and murdered right before ours, and then she heard about ours coming out. And I would bet dollars to donuts that it had some kind of influence on them saying, let's reopen the case. When Spike and I did Four Little Girls in Alabama, the state attorney general reopened the case after that film came out. So it can motivate things to happen. Now, the primary part of my career has been documentaries. And the thing that has always intrigued me and made me curious about documentaries is digging into these complicated stories that don't on the surface seem complicated. But when you dig into them, they are. 
I'm looking for the levels of complexity, even within the Black experience. Sam, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for talking with us. It's been my pleasure, Ronald and Brittany. Very nice meeting you both. Our next conversation is with novelist and professor Tayari Jones. She's perhaps best known for her 2018 novel, An American Marriage, but it's her first novel, a book called Leaving Atlanta, that made us think of her for this episode. Leaving Atlanta is told from the point of view of three Black children growing up during the time of the Atlanta child murders. the child murders were happening between 1979 and 1981. What's your personal connection to this story? I grew up here in Atlanta. When the first bodies were found, I was eight. Two of the students at my elementary school um, were murdered. It was Yusef Bell and Terry Pugh. They were two very different boys. And Yusef, he wasn't officially at our school. The the way it was set up at the time, they had kind of like magnet programs for gifted children. And so the gifted children would come over to our school. But he was in our class. He was such a sweet, quiet kid. And it was the first time I had ever seen anyone that I knew in real life connected with anything on the news, let alone, you know, a murder. How did your life change once the Atlanta child murders became a thing in your family's world? It took over our lives for two years. And think about it. If you're eight or nine years old, two years is a huge percentage of your whole life. So for two years, there was this sense that someone could be trying to kill you. So things changed. Like before the child murders, Atlanta is really an urban forest. When I was watching a documentary and they were showing like some of the areas where children had been found, like Niski Lake. It's right around the corner from where I grew up. We would kind of explore the woods as children. We would pack lunches and we would call ourselves hiking and we would eat our sack lunches maybe a mile from home. It felt like we had traveled so far. And it was a big part of our culture as children, this outdoorsy life, even though we were urban kids. But after the child murders, our parents didn't have to tell us not to go in the woods. We were self-policing and terrified in that way. But the thing that really frightened me the most is that I remember overhearing someone say, if you don't know who it is, you don't know who it's not. Mm. And this idea that perhaps it wasn't a stranger, it could be someone you knew. And so it made the whole world feel kind of terrifying. All the adults had these different strategies on how they were going to save the children. So, you know, there was Mrs. Bell and the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, and we liked her. There were the guardian angels that came. Dressed in red berets and insignia t-shirts, New York's guardian angels came to teach Atlanta's children how to protect themselves. And we were suspicious of them because, first off, we didn't know what was going on with that hat. Right, right. (laughs) The beret. (laughs) And I remember this little boy, he went right up to the guardian angel and said, y'all didn't have no black angels you could have sent down here? (laughs) And the guardian angel said, yes, the guardian angels are a multi-ethnic organization. And he said, so y'all got black ones? And the guardian angel said, yes, young man, we have black guardian angels. And then the little boy said, well, that's who I want to come and save me and walked past him. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. He just talked back to this this white angel that came from New York. (laughs) (laughs) Then there there were the men who were the bat patrols. They had those red, black, and green bats. And we liked them as children because we could get behind that. The Nation of Islam tried to save us. And then we said, how are they going to chase somebody wearing church shoes? They they can't do nothing wearing those shoes. And so we liked the Bat Patrol because they had the bats and they were wearing sneakers and they just looked more like they could get something done. Yes. Because we were children and I feel like the way that we looked at things was really different. I think it was harder on our parents than it was on us. Mm -hmm. Children don't have historical memory. Mm -hmm. Our parents were looking at this as the latest in a long history of racialized violence. Yeah. But children, we're in the moment. People, And also people look at the children as the future. So they're killing Black children meant they were killing the future. And like I said, children don't think of each other symbolically. Like I didn't look at my little friends and be like, there goes the future. Yeah. <laughs> That's so accurate. I just looked at my little friends as my little friends. So we didn't have that meta sense of dread. Mm. And I think that was also a, a real difference in how, you know, we perceive things. You mentioned your connection to Yusuf Bell and his mother, Camille Bell, what impact did she have on you? 
little kids, we really looked up to Mrs. Bell because she seemed like she was looking out for the kids, that she cared about kids. She was not impressed by our city government. Where I grew up on my side of town, everyone was very impressed with Maynard Jackson, Julian Bond, that whole Morehouse crew, and this idea that we had this Black mayor. She was not reverent. She was irreverent toward our Black mayor. And that was kind of shocking and impressive and inspiring in ways that I didn't even fully comprehend until I was older. I think she was really the first example I saw of a Black feminist response to a crisis. There's a kind of anti-feminist way there is a slotting women as mothers only. But she was like a crusader for children as the most vulnerable among us, you know, the least of these. And there she was being so brave. And then when I saw the doc, I also saw the way that she was the spokesperson for the other mothers because she was, you know, calm under pressure. It was like she was straddling a line between her relationship with the mothers, many of whom were poor and working class, but she had the same language as the mayor. Yeah, I mean, the docuseries touches a bit on the class tensions within Atlanta's Black community at that time. How did you come to understand that maybe you might have been safer than some of your classmates, for example? How did you perceive those class conflicts at your young age? One of the biggest myths, I think, in Black America is that all Black people are equally vulnerable because we're all Black, right? You know, we talk about it when we talk about police violence. They say, you know, the police will only see that you're Black. And when people talk about the child murders, people say, oh, it's because the children were Black. But when you're in Atlanta and there's so many different types of Black people and we have this critical mass of Black people, these distinctions become more clear. Well, the way I perceived it as a little girl was that most of the children who were killed or the ones that I knew about or what I knew of them is that they did not have their dads at home. And, you know, I had my daddy and I saw him every day. I still talk to him every day. And I didn't understand that as a class marker. I had no understanding of what it meant to be a two-income household and what the implications of that were. But I saw they didn't have their dads and that their moms had to go work and that they were by themselves. I was never by myself. My mother wouldn't allow that. My mother's favorite word was supervised. I remember when I was about maybe in the fifth grade, I was invited to a slumber party. And I told my mom and my mama said, well, I'm going to have to speak to her mother. And I was like, I don't think other people are doing that. My mother said, oh no, I must talk to her mother. Mm. So my mother called the girl and the mother wasn't going to be there because she was working. Mm. And my mother was like clutching all the pearls and proceeded to call all the other mothers and tell them that that party was not supervised. And when my mother used that word unsupervised, I knew it was a wrap. (laughs) Wow. It was over. And so the party was canceled because nobody's mom would let them go to something that was unsupervised. You know, looking back at, at some of the narrativizing being done by certain news outlets at that time, it's interesting that you had some understanding of how Black mothers were being portrayed, even though it might have been lost among members of the media. I think a lot of people in the media at that time and even now, they think that Black equals poor. So that they didn't even understand that there were Black people who were poor and Black people who weren't poor. Mm. They, that just wasn't even in their head as something to even think about. But here on the ground in Atlanta, like I grew up in a very segregated Atlanta. I never saw any white people. My doctor was Black. My dentist was Black. My teachers were Black. So race wasn't the way we understood who we were. Like any time someone could say, Black people don't do this thing or that thing, it was was like you were telling me human beings don't do this thing or that Mm. thing because Mm. all the people were Black. And so that's why class, I think, was so stark because we didn't bond as Black people. That's really interesting. You wrote your first novel, Leaving Atlanta, and it's set during the time of the child murders. And you tell the story from the perspective of three children. How did the process of writing that story impact your own processing of these tragedies? Well, like a lot of people, my first novel is a coming-of-age story. You know, that's nothing unusual about that. But I decided to write about the child murders, not knowing that this was kind of a lost chapter of American history in that way, because... I grew up here, it was so present for me, but I realized I wanted to write it because I was wondering why we never talked about it. 
I wasn't remotely curious as to why America wasn't talking about it. I mean, I thought I knew why, and I I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in the silence in my own community. Hmm. The novel ends and the murder is still at large, and people say, well, well, who did it? And for me, I was like, that's not the point. I don't want to make this a story about the police. The answer to what ails us is not the state. The answer to what ails us is our community and the ways that we come together. Tayari, in your book, you do a great job of describing what it was like for children at that time. You also comment on the way that this traumatic event changed the culture of Atlanta as a city. What do you remember of how these disappearances and murders changed Atlanta and what it felt like to live there? After it happened, it was like we agreed to speak of it no more. It was like we were in an unwritten pact that we would let this go so that we could move forward as a city. Black people never believed that Wayne Williams was guilty. And so the way it changed the culture was that it made us kind of feel like, of course, they're going to say we've done this to ourselves and a distrust of media and a distrust of the police. I think that was really important. And it brought up for me this specter of hate crime, of white violence. So even though I didn't know any white people in real life, I was terrified of hypothetical white people. Mm-hmm. When I was a student at Spelman College, I used to babysit a little boy named Jimmy. On Tuesdays, I would help him with his math. And I went to pick him up at the bus stop and he wasn't there. And I went into what I now understand would be a full-on panic attack, but I didn't have that language. And I was asking everyone, can they help me? And most people were saying, oh, he's just a few minutes late. But the girls that came to help me, we had all grown up in Atlanta and we knew this was an emergency. But He was fine. Just as the Chicago girls suggested, he was getting chicken. (laughs) As one does. Do you think that there's a future in which this is healed, that this divide or this, this hurt is actually healed? Is there a way to get that healing? And is it through solving the case? No, that's one of the questions I was asking myself watching the documentary because, you know, I had always said this case should have more attention. And now it has lots of attention. There's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's all these things. And I don't feel any better. As a matter of fact, I feel rather exposed. Like as I was watching the documentary and I was seeing all the footage of the children when their bodies were discovered, I felt so exposed and hurt. I said to myself, I said, well, you know, I wrote my novel 20 years ago. I said, well, more people should know about this. There should be more attention. And I said, I guess this is what attention looks like. And attention isn't helping. I think if they found some person that murdered those children 40 years ago, how old is that person now? They're going to drag some old person out and say, this is who did it. Then what? Is that going to bring the kids back? Is that going to make the mothers feel any less harm by all the negative press they got, the way people denigrated them? I don't think solving the case would fix that, but I don't think that means the case shouldn't be solved. I don't know if those of us who were here could be healed. I think the healing will be for future generations that we have to do cultural and societal change to make it where children are safe, where children don't think that someone is going to try to kill them. If the children of the future are able to walk in the woods, then we are healed. But it's going to be the children of the future. I don't know if there's anything that could be done for me. I don't know if there's anything that could be done for the mothers or the siblings left behind. We're going to carry this the rest of our lives. But what we owe the next generation is that they don't carry it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So now that we've discussed the documentary and talked with our guests, let's check on what's happened since Atlanta's Missing and Murdered first aired back in April of 2020. A couple of memorials have been created. In December 2021, the task force convened by former Atlanta mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms broke ground on an eternal flame memorial to honor the victims. And that's going to be built right outside Atlanta City Hall. Right. And six months before that, 
in June of 2021, um, a visual art series called the Atlanta Children's Memorial Portraits was unveiled at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Beyond the memorials in October 2021, Lance Bottoms sent city investigators to hand-deliver existing DNA evidence to a private forensics lab in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, the city of Atlanta won't release the name of the lab, but says that the lab specializes in analyzing deteriorating DNA. Yes, and it's important to remember that this DNA handoff is part of the historic reopening of this case that Mayor Lance Bottoms announced back in March of 2019. And interestingly enough, the case was reopened while the Atlanta's missing and murdered team was in the middle of filming. And as Sam Pollard said earlier in the show, when the case was reopened while they were in the process of shooting, he knew that would be an important part of telling the story. Just to recap, the case has been reopened, evidence is being reanalyzed, Memorials have been erected, but we still don't have any new findings about the killings. None of that has been released yet. Like wheels are moving a circle while you stand on the Brittany, I think my main takeaway here is that I'm I'm deeply dissatisfied with the outcome of this entire ordeal. Yeah. And I think that's why, like, the effect of this and the impact of this is able to remain in the community for 40 years. What was one of your biggest takeaways from the interviews? Well, talking with Sam Pollard, and one part that really stands out to me is, is the portion where he's talking about how long do you even show these violent images that they actually took care to think about that right. really, really stood out to me. What about you? You know, I think talking to Tayari and hearing the perspective of somebody who was a child at that time living in Atlanta, just the loss of trust. Yeah. It's sad to see how the legacy of that can live with a person for so many decades, so long after their childhood. It was very affecting, but so crucial to hear that from her. And uh, with that, those heavy points, uh, <laughs> that's, that's our show. <laughs> that's our show. That's our show. Join us next time when we dissect how to survive a pandemic. The brand new documentary from director David France. The film gives us a front row seat to the massive global undertaking to develop, regulate, and roll out vaccines in the war against the coronavirus pandemic. A real win for science. Yeah, and maybe something to share with your anti-vaxxer cousin. All right. Uh, (laughs) Let's end the show right there. I'm Brittany Luce. And I am Ronald Young Jr. And this has been HBO Docs Club. Thank you so much for listening. HBO Docs Club is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. It's hosted by me, Ronald Young Jr. And me, Brittany Luce. Beandria July is our lead producer and our associate producer is Maria Robin Somerville. Additional production support from Natalie Peart. Darby Maloney is our editor. Hannes Brown is our engineer and composer. John Asante is our senior managing producer. And our executive producers are Barry Finkel, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. had no idea that other people in Atlanta, like white people, thought Wayne Williams had done it. Wow. Because I grew up in this segregated lane. Yeah. So when I go on my book tour, I gave my little talk at a Barnes and Noble and a white person in the audience said, wow, and isn't it ironic that it turned out that it was a black person that did it? (laughs) I was shocked. (laughs) I didn't even have a snappy comeback. I felt like she had told me that the earth is flat. I just, I did not know there were people that believed that.